it, so sometimes I get asked the question, does CPR really save lives? And I really want to address this specifically uh, in part of this series of delving deeper into the philosophy and theory of rescue. Um, there's, there's two sides of that coin. Number one, CPR does save lives indirectly. It saves lives in so much as it buys clinical death time until help arrives. But CPR in and of itself does not necessarily save the life. Let me explain a little bit more about that. The best way I can describe it is when a person stops breathing and loses their pulse, they go into a state of death called clinical death. Now, there's not much differing between clinical death and biological death except for time. How long did they stay in clinical death? How long did they stay in a state where they didn't breathe on their own and they didn't have circulation on their own? But more importantly, how long did they go without breathing and without circulation provided by somebody else? Ah, but there's another point. See, we do cardiac compressions and, and have for years and years and years, decades in fact, that were based on numbers that are supposed to get a person's heart rate closer to what it would do if it was beating on its own. That's why right now even we've got this cardiac compression rate of between 100 compressions or more per minute. Now keep in mind that the normal heart rate of an adult is somewhere between 60 and 100 and 100 plus is on the upper end of that. But probably more importantly because science is showing us that Cardiac compressions provided by a CPR provider are inefficient related to an automatic heart rate that's intrinsically happening. Now, when I talk to my students about CPR and how that works with somebody, I oftentimes say CPR doesn't really save lives directly. It keeps people dead clinically longer. See, CPR by a lot of different research has been shown to only provide about 20 to 25 percent of the circulation of oxygen that's needed to survive or to live. Internal cardiac massage can be a little higher because we're actually massaging the heart much more like the heart beats from top to bottom working with the valves but you gotta keep in mind this person is dead their body is in a fight-or-flight mechanism, their electrolytes are completely out of balance, nothing is working the way it normally works. When you talk about the scale of bad days, this is probably the worst day this person can have physically. Now, think about the fact that we're pressing on the person's chest and we're compressing the sternum to, to compress the heart muscle. So we're basically taking this hollow organ called the heart and we're squishing it in the middle compared to a nice milking motion that it does normally when it's beating from top to bottom uh, on its own. That is only going to provide a very very small percentage of circulation of oxygenated blood compared to a normal well-functioning heart. So even at the best, even if we're doing compressions at 80, 100, 120 compressions per minute it doesn't really matter so much that we're doing the right number per minute or that it's close to the normal number of beats per minute because we're still dealing with just a fraction of the, of the circulation that a body normally gets from head to toe of a normal contracting heart muscle.
let alone the electrolyte imbalances and all the other things that, that happen. Um, the tissue death, the brain uh, tissue that is suffering of lack of oxygen, the heart tissue that's suffering from lack of oxygen, the kidneys, the liver, the pancreas. CPR in the first few minutes of cardiac arrest, I like to, to compare it to the game that some kids play where they have a balloon or a feather in the air and they're blowing that feather up into the air, blowing it up and it floats down. They blow it and it floats down. And they try to keep the feather floating as long as they can before it falls to the ground. Inevitably, they're going to run out of air or the feather is going to get away from them and it's going to fall to the ground. That may be a poor analogy, but it's similar to what I'm trying to explain about cardiac arrest. Unless we get to the bottom of why this patient is in cardiac arrest and fix the underlying pathology or fix the underlying trauma that caused this person to go into cardiac arrest, CPR is just like that, that, that little puff of air blowing that feather a little bit further, a little bit further, but it inevitably is going to crash. You know, for years, we used to base all of our perfect CPR on whether or not a student could remember you know, one breath every five compressions for 20 cycles, or two breaths every 15 compressions for four cycles, or one breath every three compressions for 20 cycles, or, you know, uh, now two breaths and 30 compressions for five cycles, or for about two and a half minutes. And the best thing that could happen is when the consensus guidelines came out and promoted compression-only CPR. Compression-only CPR basically says if you see somebody going to cardiac arrest, or what appears to be cardiac arrest, you activate 911, and you start doing chest compressions if the person is unconscious, not breathing, and not responsive, thereby showing no signs of life. You just start doing deep two and a half inch compressions or about a third of the, the depth of the chest, and you do those compressions fast and hard until help arrives or someone else adequately trained in CPR can take over. No rescue breathing is needed to do chest compression CPR only because studies are showing us that we have residual oxygen in the body that can still be circulated around for upwards of five to six minutes. And again, remember, it's not, it's not that we're trying to mimic what the body does normally when it's healthy. We're giving them what we can to tease those brain cells and tease those heart cells so that instead of them going into a permanent tissue death, we might be able to keep them in a state of clinical death so that when advanced life support arrives, we can shock them, or an AED can shock the heart, hopefully then getting the chaos to stop, which is in the heart, we'll talk, maybe talk about that later another time, and, to get, and hopefully our CPR saved enough tissue around the internal pacemaker that we're going to get the heart beating again. Um, if that happens, we might be able to buy this person enough time to fix the underlying reason they went into cardiac arrest in the first place and give them a second chance at life. So when we're doing CPR, keeping in mind that the person is already dead, CPR compressions being only a percentage of what the person needs to buy more time to hopefully keep this person in a state of clinical death longer and not biological death, which is permanent death, this side of a miracle. The goal is to keep a viable patient present so that we can use an AED or advanced life support can come in with medications and electrical therapy and hopefully by the next layer of time 
so that we can get the patient to the hospital where they can fix the underlying reason this person went into cardiac arrest in the first place. So CPR should not be looked at uh, as the cure-all, but as a time-bind link in the chain of survival. Now, keep in mind that if a person stays dead, even though you tried to do CPR, you did not fail. The person simply stayed dead. But without CPR, their chance of survival would have gone down tremendously every minute they were dead without CPR in progress. So, don't get so messed up about the numbers. Keep in mind that anything is better than nothing. Remember, people don't die or stay dead because people do CPR wrong. They stay dead because no one does CPR at all. From Roy on Rescue, until next time, have a great day.